0: Mark chapter 3, Opinions and Reality, is the text this morning. Mark 3. Who is Jesus? This is the critical question, not only in the Bible, but for all of our lives. So would you bow with me for a moment? Father, we thank you for the precious people that have gathered on this Sunday morning to come, for some to come and know you better. Some are still maybe investigating. And some have been away for a while. And they miss you. <laughs> because life without you is really uh, going nowhere, ultimately. The Bible tells us all we need to know about Jesus. And you are the center, you are what the Bible is all about. And we know the four Gospels tell us everything we need to know. This is what you wanted us to hear about who you are, Lord. And you don't hide anything. You don't hide people's opinions about uh, what they said about you, the derogatory things that were said, the negative opinions, the confusion. And nothing is new under the sun, Father. Uh, We see articles come out in newspapers and magazines questioning the historical Jesus. Who is he? And Lord, this morning, we're going to see clearly who you are, but we're going to also see that opinions and confusion are nothing new. And I pray that you'd bring clarity through your word. I pray that you would speak to us, and we know you will because your word is alive and it's powerful. So please help us to set aside every distraction. We want to know who you are. We want to know the Jesus of the Bible. So please take what is on paper this morning in my notes and add and take away as you would will. Tune our hearts, Lord, to hear what your spirit would say to us, that you may be glorified in each of our lives and that we may be those who are ambassadors of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Mark 3, verse 20, opinions and reality. And he, Jesus, Mark 3, 20, came home. Home is probably Capernaum at this point, not Nazareth, because Capernaum became his adopted hometown. And the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. We talked about Jesus' busy life last Sunday and how multitudes of people, uh, probably tens of thousands of people, were flocking to him Uh, People were coming with all these desperate needs, coming from all the four corners of the state or nation of Israel. They were coming from Tyre and Sidon. They were coming from Judea and Jerusalem. They were coming from the other side of the Jordan. They were coming from everywhere just to hear him, some just to experience his power. And it got so busy, even when Jesus, Jesus went back to Capernaum, that he couldn't even eat. Now, Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I pretty much prioritize my meals. Uh, (laughs) When it's lunchtime, it's lunchtime, and if you know, if it gets knocked back a half an hour, I'm I'm okay. An hour, a little cranky, but you know, the joke is we rarely miss a meal, right? Most of us in America, if you have teenagers, they must eat seven times a day. Uh, You know, I'm famished. When would you eat last? It was 45 minutes ago. Oh, for their metabolism. That's what I pray for. A teenager's metabolism. I used to be able to eat a burrito at midnight, and it was not a problem. In fact, uh, when I was playing racquetball years ago, this young guy, he was a really good racquetball player. He would show up with a bag of Del Taco eat it outside the racquetball court and then go in and wipe everybody out. That's a dream of mine, to eat del taco. (laughs) But Jesus couldn't even eat a meal. Life had become so busy. Uh, You know, no drive throughs back in the day either. Meals were usually times of deeper fellowship and you had to do a lot of preparation to eat a meal. And he was so busy that he couldn't. He said, my food is to do the will of God. You know, would to God that we had the priority of heaven so much so that if we got inconvenienced because we had to talk to somebody about the gospel, if it put us behind schedule by 15 minutes, if we had to even miss a meal to express the gospel to somebody else, would that be okay with us? Is is heaven's priority so much your priorities that you're willing to bend your schedule a little bit even be inconvenienced for the sake of Jesus and other people meeting him. You know, that's what ministry is all about. And that's what it means to die to yourself. But it's hard for us. And that's one of the things that Jesus was modeling, even to the extent that when the multitude kept banging on the door for more and more of his time, he skipped meals because he was more interested in people. And so here he is in his adopted hometown doing miracles right and left and he's so busy, so pressed. R. Kent Hughes says, this pressing multitude was a desperate mixture. At the center were the newly chosen apostles, the 12. They were hanging on his every word. The scribes were turning over every syllable he spoke because they had come to destroy him. They did not believe in him. So they were measuring everything. Some in the multitude were eager, ecstatic, some quizzical, some perplexed, some livid and some even blasphemous. Every extreme was represented and at the periphery of the surging throng standing nervously outside was his family. You see, Because the word was going everywhere about Jesus and he was doing these miracles and people were saying no one ever spoke like this man, word got to his family and his family began to be concerned. And you're going to see a startling passage. In fact, you're going to see a startling passage that uh, is so shocking that some manuscript traditions tried to tweak it a little bit because you're going to see a section where his family says... We think he's lost it. We think he has lost his senses. We think the Greek word here is he is insane. Now, you could come to all kinds of conclusions and you can conjecture on the motivation of the family, but we know at this point, and among these brothers, and by the way, all the brothers of Jesus were younger because he was the firstborn of Joseph and Mary. And I know some of us, you know, we have backgrounds where. Uh, We are not sure that there were additional children, but the Bible is clear that Mary and Joseph had additional children. Mary was a virgin until after Jesus was born. Then they went on and had a normal marital relationship, and Jesus had brothers. And among them, two of them wrote books of the Bible. One of them is the book of James. James became the leader of the Jerusalem church, but he did not believe in Jesus, apparently, until after the resurrection. Another one of his brothers that wrote a book is called Jude, and that's the book right before the book of Revelation. But these brothers who grew up with him did not believe in him. John 7, verse 4, if you want to write it down, it says, not even his brothers were believing in him. This may dispel some of the notions that Jesus was doing all kinds of miracles as a child, I know that there's these ideas that, you know, Jesus was a miracle worker as a child, but the only true records we have in the Bible are the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke, and then we have Jesus going back to the temple at 12, not doing miracles, but surprising people by his biblical knowledge and his wisdom at 12, but no record that he was doing miracles. This is all extra biblical stuff, and it's interesting to speculate. I know there's a movie out right now that you know, tries to fill in some of those details, and I've heard some pretty good things about that movie in terms of at least speculation about the relationships and stuff, but there's no record that Jesus was doing miracles as a child. If he was doing miracles left and right, don't you think his brothers would have believed in him? So Jesus was fully human, and it would appear from the biblical record that he does not really begin to reveal himself until he's 30 years old at the Jordan River when he asked John to baptize him. And the spirit comes down and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Again, this is just uh, conjecture. It's not huge to the story, but it is interesting that his brothers don't even believe in him. Verse 21 says, when His own people. If you have the ESV or NIV, it says his own family. And this is a Jewish, uh, this is a colloquialism, by the way. Uh, And a colloquial expression uh, is his, it could be his family, his relatives, or his friends. But whenever you wonder about the way to translate uh, something that could have multiple meanings, you look at the context. And later on, his family appears, I think it's in verse 31. And they're standing outside the door and asking for him. So the logical conclusion is that the family or the, the, the people, his own people here, verse 21, if you have the NAS, uh, when his own people heard this. They went out, notice, to take custody of him. Just a side note, this is the only gospel writer, by the way, that mentions this specific incident that the family thought that he had lost his senses. And some scholars believe that Mark is the earliest gospel that really doesn't matter much, but the Bible's telling us is we, we get different gospel perspectives about what was going on. And it says, when his own family heard of this, they went out to take custody. And IV says to take charge of him. ESV says to seize him. It's the idea of arresting him. For they were saying, look at verse 21, he has lost his senses. I think some of the other versions say he has lost his mind. Wow. You know, if the Bible writers were trying to make up a story about this clearly divine one who nobody ever had a doubt about his identity and what his, you know, origins were and that he was truly the God-man from heaven, do you think the Bible would record this if this was a cooked-up story? Do you think the Gospels would actually say that some of his, the people who should have known him best thought he had lost his senses? This lends more uh, clarity and, uh, to the truth of the Bible for me that the Bible's very honest about what was happening. There were varied opinions about Jesus just like there are varied opinions about him today. But the varied opinions, in fact, uh, apparently a group closest to him thought he was insane was his family. And some of you say, I can totally relate to that. <laughs> See, some of your family... You think they've lost it, and some of your family watching you think you have lost it. <laughs> and it depends on the day of the week whether or not you think I have lost it. But uh, anyway, they thought he had lost his senses. And, you know, to put it in a modern way, the family apparently thought they needed to do an intervention, they thought they needed to somehow talk him down. The idea here is they wanted to come into Capernaum and say, Jesus, you need to come home. Come back to Nazareth. Stop this. And among the family, get this, we will find out in a few verses, is Mary, his mother. And with all that's happened to Mary in the the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke and the angelic visitation and the, the stuff in the temple with Simeon and Anna... How in the world could she have any doubt about who he was? But maybe, and I think that this is the way to go on the grace side in in terms of our conclusions, is I would say that their motivation was love. And for Mary, maybe it was, you know, remember, word is spreading everywhere about what he's doing. He's the talk of the whole nation. Maybe for her it was, I need to rescue him. You remember when Simeon took the baby Jesus in his arms and he began to uh, praise God because his eyes had beheld his salvation. He had a promise from the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. But then he told Mary, a sword is going to pierce your own soul. This child is set up for the rise and the fall of many. Many people are going to be exposed just by his very life and a sword's going to pierce you. And her whole life, I'm sure, do you think she would have ever forgotten that prophecy? I don't think so. It doesn't matter that it's been 30 years plus. So maybe she's going as a mom would go, saying he's in trouble. Could she ever have imagined with all the angelic stuff that happened and the early miracles of the birth of Jesus, could she have imagined that Jesus would be at odds with the religious leaders who... I would imagine she respected. Remember, she was just a little young teenage girl from Nazareth. Yeah, she was special in terms of being chosen by God to birth the Messiah. She seemed to love God. That's clear from the early gospel stories. But could she have imagined that the religious leaders at this point were plotting to destroy her son? That they were saying that he was a false messiah? I mean, all moms have their tendencies to want to rescue their children. And all the mothers said, amen. Say it really softly, amen. (laughs) We know that mama bear kind of thing, right? You mess with mama's children, look out. (laughs) It's not safe. And so maybe that's her motivation. I don't know for sure, but it's hard to imagine that she would be confused about who he was. The brothers definitely were. And this is insightful, isn't it? It's both insightful and it's painful. Imagine Jesus. Many, many times in the Bible, we see that he knows what's going on. He knows people's thoughts. He knows things that only the Son of God, God the Son, could know. Supernatural insights. How must this have pained him? to know that his own family was questioning him. It's one thing when people are saying stuff about you. It's another thing when your family doubts you. This is the th- stuff that Jesus went through. And remember when I told you that if you are stressed out or you know feeling under the gun, you have a high priest who understands. He was under pressure all the time. But even more, our great high priest knows what it's like to be denied by the leading apostle, betrayed by another apostle, and even have his family question his sanity. Wow. That's who you go to in prayer, by the way. He can totally understand all the aspects of life that we go through. And I'm sure he was pained as they came and tried to take charge or custody of him and said, he's lost it. New King James, ESV, NIV, all render this he is out of his mind. And this is how Mark records what is happening. Jesus later will take the disciples, go to Mark chapter 8. He's at Caesarea Philippi up in the northern part of Israel. And he begins to question them. He's getting ready to die. It's at the tail end of his ministry. Mark 8 verse 27. Jesus, Mark eight twenty-seven, went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, look at Mark eight twenty-seven. who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, thou art the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And we'll come back to this in a later study, but I just want you to know that at some point in your life, it's going to come down to this question, back to Mark 3, who do you say that he is? You know, ultimately, the Bible teaches that you're going to stand before Jesus Christ one day. You're going to, in fact, the Bible says in John chapter 5 that all judgment has been given to the Son the Bible says if you don't have the son, 1 John 2, 23, you don't have the father. The Bible says that unless you believe, Jesus says that I am, you will die in your sins. And the Bible teaches that one day Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. Sheep on his right hand, goats on his left. And he will say to some in these uh, you know, stories later in the Gospel of Matthew, people will say, Lord, open to us. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Lord, let us into the wedding banquet. And he will say, depart from me. This is Jesus talking, by the way. I never knew you. You know, all of life really comes down to who do you say that Jesus is and then do you know him? And people say, oh, wait a minute, Christian. That's a little too narrow now. That's a little. Aren't you shoehorning people? Aren't, Aren't you making this you know, really an exclusive type of deal, no, I'm not making it one. And if you have a friend or a coworker who accuses you of making this too narrow, just tell them, I didn't make it narrow, man. He's the one that said it. Your argument's not with me, sir or ma'am, it's with him. You can come to whatever conclusion you want to, but as for me and my house, We will serve the Lord. You can either take Jesus at his word or not, but you cannot set aside the clear proclamation of the gospels. You can't. You can come to your own conclusions. In fact, in a free will universe, however you work out your own view of salvation, part of it is on man to repent and believe and trust in what the Bible declares about Jesus Christ. If you don't want to do that, Jesus says you're either for me Oh, you're against me. But here the Bible's being honest that there were people, and, and some I'm sure in the crowd, who progress, progressively had their eyes open. And, and I think that that's legitimate. And by the way, this does not mean that you can't ask questions. You should ask questions. Do your homework. Look at the resurrection accounts. Wrestle with the biblical Jesus. You should do that. It's not wrong to ask questions. It's not wrong to even be on a journey where you're trying to figure out if this is what you want to believe, because I think you should. I think you should do some of your own homework. But in the end, you're going to be faced with the biblical Jesus. And here's what people love to do. They love to redefine Jesus. And here's what people say. Other religions say he's a way-shower. Other people say, yeah, he's a good moral teacher, but he's certainly not God. And people want to redefine him what if someone did that to one of your family members? What if someone said, oh, that's not really your family member and they weren't really born over here and that's not really who they are. Would you be a little upset if they said that about your mom or your family heritage? I would. So what are you talking about? That, that's my family. Well, here's what people do on the planet. They redefine Jesus so that it's not so narrow so they can hang their hat on, you know, there's gotta be another way. And I understand that. It's a little bit more convenient for people. But this is what the Bible is telling us. It's even worse. The family thought he had lost it. Verse 22, Mark 3 says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So here's kind of a delegation from the religious capital. We would uh, conclude here that they were an investigative party kind of sent from the capital Religious center to verify that maybe Capernaum was under this uh, delusional messianic figure. And from their perspective, they were just going to take notes and validate that he can't be the Messiah. They didn't want to believe in him. So they went. The scribes or Pharisees probably sent out from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the day. And they were saying, they took it a step further. They said he's possessed by Beelzebul and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Wow. Family said, "Uh, I think he's lost it a little bit. Religious leader said, he is possessed. Wow. This is the varying opinions that were happening when Jesus was walking the planet. And uh, I would like you to turn to John chapter 10. Here's a parallel, uh, well, it's not a parallel account, but here's another insight, John chapter 10. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's the good shepherd. And uh, let's pick it up in verse 14 of John 10. John 10, 14. I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, John ten fourteen, and I lay down my life for the sheep, uh, 16 now, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. And there arose a division among the Jews because of these words, verse 20, John 10. And many of them were saying, notice many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. So they took both of the words, if you will, or some of the opinions that were occurring and they combined them and hung their hat with the following words. They said, he's a demon, he's insane. Why do you listen to him? You see, if I can recategorize Jesus, then I can dismiss his words. Do you understand that this is the motivation for a lot of people of their excuses? Too many hypocrites in the church. Oh, Jesus can't be the only way. And so they hang their hat on that so that they don't have to deal with the consequences of what he said. And even in his own day, the religious leader said, he has a demon. He's insane. Can you imagine how terrible this is in light of all the good that he was doing? In light of the beauty of who he was? How many people did he touch? How many people did he reach out to? How many people did he deliver from demonic possession? How many people did he heal? He raised the dead. And the conclusion of the religious leaders is that he's possessed. You see, they were not comfortable with admitting that he was the Messiah. If you look at John 7, verse 20, we have the same thing. John 7, verse 20. It says, The multitude answered, John 7, 20, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus knew that they were plotting his death. Look at John 8:48. John 8:48. Jesus is in a conflict with the Jewish religious leaders. John 8:48, this is the tail end of a debate that goes back and forth. They're making all kinds of accusations, including that he was born illegitimately. John 8, 48, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan? Now they added a Samaritan, by the way. (laughs) You're insane, you're a Samaritan. You have a demon, verse 48. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. Notice Jesus how politically correct he was. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abram Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, how about this, folks? I am. And they didn't miss what he said. He goes all the way back to the burning bush, Exodus 3, verse 14. I am that I am. Moses is asking about his name. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Back to Mark 3. You can see how heated it got between Jesus and the religious leaders. You could see how many accusations coming his way. You could maybe go back in the day and see the magazines on the rack and the History Channel saying the conclusion of Professor so-and-so is that he's a Samaritan. The conclusion of so-and-so is that he's lost it a little bit. The conclusion of so-and-so is that, you know, he's possessed. This is what was happening back in the day. Jesus became a lightning rod for people's conclusions. But here he is vanquishing the powers of evil. And they attribute his power, Mark 3, to Beelzebul. Notice verse 22. They said he is possessed by Beelzebul. This uh, particular name has gotten a lot of print. But here's, what it, here's the, the different conclusions on the word. Beelzebub or Beelzebul. Baal is the first part. And Baal means master or lord. You guys know that when you read your Old Testament, you see that there's this constant draw of Israel to Baal or Baal. And there's Baal and then there's a, uh, sometimes a dash and there's a Baal for a different region. So there were different endings on his name because there were different Baals at different places. But Baal was supposed to be the one in charge of weather and lightning and that kind of thing. He was kind of the, the weather or fertility god and so if you appeased him or you had his favor, your crops and your herds and all of that, which was important in agrarian society, did well. So you want, if you wanted rain, you had to look to Baal. And Israel got caught up in Baal worship all the time. So Beelzebul, um, there are some, let me just read this. This is from a, uh, one of the commentaries. The form Beelzebub occurs of the god of Ekron, 2 Kings 1, 2 and 3, 6 and 16, in the Hebrew text, not in the Septuagint, not in the Greek. This means Lord of the Flies. May well be a Hebrew pun on a similar-sounding Philistine name. Some suggest that the Jews further corrupted this into the similar-sounding Beelzebul, or, get this, so Beelzebub is Lord of the Flies, Beelzebul is Lord of the Dung. So there are some people who believe that the Jews, to kind of mock the the pagan gods, twisted the name, changed the letter, if you will, on the name, and changed Lord of the Flies to Lord of the Dung. In essence, to say, if you follow a god that's known as Beelzebul, be careful where he leads you. There you go. (laughs) Lord of the Flies, some of you have heard that. You know that one of the plagues in Egypt was a plague of gnats or flies, right? And the Egyptian sorcerers were so dumb that they tried to repeat what God did. Can you imagine having, how many of you go crazy when there's just one fly in your house? Just admit it right now. How many of you have a huge fly swatter? It's bigger than most of your family members. My mother is this way. If there's a fly in the house and she's cooking Italian, everything must stop until the fly dies. Get that, get that fly, Michael. We're all diving after the fly. Do not let that fly touch and corrupt our food. And so they tried to imitate what God did and they couldn't do it. They said, no, this is the finger of God. Now, if you were the Egyptian magicians, I wouldn't try to duplicate the miracle. I'd try to create off bug spray, wouldn't you? To try to counter what the God of Israel was doing. Well, here is this name. But imagine now that they're applying the name to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God the Son. And they have just called him a derisive, twisted term. That's the lowest of the low. It's about as low as you can hit somebody. And this is blasphemous. You see, this is where it sunk, you guys. And sometimes you hear people, how many of you get a little upset when you hear God's name taken in vain? How many of you take your fly swatter out and you try to hit that family member? Anyway. It's okay, you can admit it. (laughs) Confession's good for the soul. Anyway. Anyway. Can you imagine what they're saying? They say, he's possessed by the Lord of the flies, the Lord of the dung, the God or gods of the pagans and the demon powers behind them. You know, if I was Jesus, I think that would have been the time to call fire down from heaven. James and John had been asking him, right? <laughs> okay, boys, <laughs> Yeah. This is the place, right over there. Man, he's so patient. And he called them to himself, verse 23, and he began, Mark three twenty-three. he began speaking to them in parables. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus uses a logical argument. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking what? Someone to devour. And Jesus is saying, so are you saying, boys, that Satan is destroying his own kingdom? Are you saying that you believe that all these people who are being delivered from being demonized, Satan's doing all this? People might say, well, you know, maybe Jesus did it to cover who he really was. Yeah, but he didn't just do it once. He did it over and over again. Sometimes the sun was setting and he was still delivering people left and right. Satan wouldn't do that to his own kingdom. Jesus said, just just pause, breathe a little bit, boys. I know you're upset. I know you're not getting as much press as you'd like right now. I know you feel that maybe your nation is in jeopardy, but just think about what you're thinking Satan's not going to cast out Satan. Those people have become his property. They've been extensions of his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And you think he's going to eradicate the power from his own kingdom? I don't think so. If you're a religious leader and maybe you've gotten caught up in the hysteria, wouldn't you begin to think a little bit? By the way, the, the word parable, this will lead us into the parable of the sower in Mark 4 for next time. It's used three times in the Old Testament. And let me just give you one place where it's used. Just write this down. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4 says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Psalm 78, 1 through 4. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Parable is parabole in Greek, and it means to compare or it is comparable to. It's sometimes defined as an uh, earthly story with a spiritual point, but a parable is a comparison. It's to place one thing aside another to bring clarity, to help you understand a concept. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Here's where the parable pretty much starts it says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. You could say, why would Satan cast out Satan? He says, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And all of us know that sometimes the devil's greatest work is in division. Look at verse 25, a house divided. If if Satan's up to anything, it's not to divide his own kingdom, it's to divide God's kingdom. If Satan's up to anything, it's to cause division in the church. It's to cause division in your marriage. It's to break, about, break apart relationships that can be vital to the proclamation of the gospel. That's what he does. He tries to get a foot in the door, as it were. He takes advantage of situations when people allow the flesh to get the best of them. And then all of a sudden, the kingdom of God is affected. Sometimes it happens in a family And there's people who proclaim that they're Christians and their behavior doesn't reflect it. And something happens and something unbiblical happens. And sometimes a a child watches it happen in a church or in a marriage. And then for years, they don't even go to church. You know why? Because they've been affected. Look, there's healing in Christ. We've all made our mistakes. Do you see how the devil works? It's not just one person that these things affect. It's many, and sometimes it's even generations. Generations can embrace faithfulness demonstrated, or they can embrace sometimes what they see as hypocrisy. And this is what he does. If Satan has risen up against Satan, 26, against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. Look at verse 26, but he is finished. He won't do this. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Let's go to Luke 11. Luke 11. Here's Jesus' words and they are powerful. There were some exorcists that went around in the day and they allegedly could cast out demons as well. They failed in the book of Acts. Some of you know that story. And the demon says, uh, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And these so-called exorcists, sons of Sceva, get beat up. You remember that? Well, this is Luke 11, um, 17. He knew their thoughts, Luke eleven seventeen, 17, and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if by Beelzebul, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Logical argument. Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, reminds us of the plague of flies back in... Um, Egypt, it reminds us of the law written by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he, and Jesus is obviously stronger than Satan, that's why he's able to do what he does, attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, He who does not gather with me scatters. You see, this is the idea. Back to Mark, and we'll finish it up. Satan is not going to do this to his own kingdom, but deep down, these men must know that Jesus is God in the flesh, or at least the Messiah. Now look at verse 27, Mark 3. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. Truly, this is literally amen, I say to you. You could render it truly, truly. Listen closely, I say to you. All sin shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, before we get into one of the more difficult verses in the Bible, and we talk about a verse that keeps some people up at night and makes them... Nervous. Let's talk about some good news. Verse 28 says, All sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. And all God's people said, Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Thank you. All sins are forgivable. Doesn't mean all sins are going to be forgiven, but they're open to forgiveness if one will simply trust in Jesus Christ. Whatever sin you've committed, however far you think you've gone, it's forgivable. There's only one unforgivable sin, and here it comes. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, that is a fearful and chilling uh, verse, and it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Jesus. And the question becomes, what is this unforgivable sin that won't even be forgiven in this life or the life to come? I will tell you that many people have asked this question over the years. Many people have called Bible radio shows and said, I think I, I, think I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Help me. And then the people on the other side of the Radio program have often said, if you are concerned that you've committed this sin, you haven't. This is a sin, contextually, historically, that probably, and you'll have to wrestle with this some on your own, is limited to this particular time and audience who was watching his miracles right in front of them and knew better. In fact, they're the experts in the Bible. They know the Bible. They know what the Old Testament prophecies say the Messiah will do, including open eyes of the blind and unstopped deaf ears and cause the lame to walk. They know he will bring deliverance and bring light where there was once darkness. The context has never been more important for a saying to find its true meaning. The critics of Jesus have watched God's grace freely given in the casting out of demons. Their offense is not that they have asked questions, nor is it that they did not understand. The disciples of Jesus will find themselves in that situation in the very next chapter. Least of all, the religious leaders unthinkably or ignorantly or unknowingly used hapless words constituting blasphemy or bad language. Their sin, and this is from Cranfield, is that in the presence of God's grace, in action, they have not only rejected it but ascribed it to the devil. They have have ascribed the works of heaven to hell. This is their fixed position. No wonder they will not find forgiveness. They are set on calling the Spirit's work the activity of Satan. It may be that Jesus means that they have not yet reached this point of no return, and that he is warning them against hardening their current attitude into a permanent stance. This is the sin that is before us. Jesus may be saying something like this. You are on the verge of committing something from which you will never return. Wow. Jesus will even say that even blasphemy spoken against the Son will be forgiven. And how many people take the name of Jesus in vain over and over in our world? It's a good thing the Bible says those will be forgiven. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit here would be attributing the work of Almighty God to the work of Satan in full view of experiencing that work, I need to take you to one more place, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, look at verse 18. Matthew 12, verse 18. A prophecy from Isaiah 42. Behold, Matthew 12, 18, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well-pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, from Isaiah 42, verse 1. And he shall proclaim justice to the gentiles Matthew 12:19 he will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets a battered reed he will not break off he will not beat up people who are already broken a smoldering wick he will not put out if you're if you feel like you're at the end and the the light is dimming he won't put it out he won't blow it out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the gentiles will hope Matthew 12:22 Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, or mute, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're saying, is he the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the idea. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Um, he talks about, he who is not, verse 30, with me is against me. He does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, 31, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good or its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. Now you know why Jesus talked the way he did sometimes to these people. He said, you brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak they shall render account for it on the day of judgment or in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you shall be condemned. Those are the words of Jesus and the context is revealing, isn't it? It's in the light of the work of the Holy Spirit, the gracious work of the Spirit being attributed to Satan. But Jesus' power is evident. Back to Mark and we'll, I said we'll finish last time, huh? Mark uh, Mark 3. <laughs> You, say, you see, he said this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This was the ultimate blasphemy. Cranfield, one more time. It's a matter of great importance pastorally that we can say with absolute confidence to anyone who is overwhelmed by the fear that he has committed this sin, that the fact that he is so troubled is itself a sure proof that he has not committed it. A person so... Insensitive to the spirit that he attributes what is of God to demonic origin, will not be conscious of having committed the ultimate transgression. Take a breath. If this has bothered you in the past, then you haven't committed it. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is probably limited to the historical context of these Pharisees. But you could say there is another arm of this, and the arm of this is the only unforgivable sin, then, is to reject the Spirit's testimony of Jesus. The Spirit came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit came to glorify the Son and point people to the Son. That's what he does. If you reject the work of the Holy Spirit, if you want to hang your hat on some lame excuse that other people are saying, then Jesus would also say that that is, you're not going to have forgiveness because you don't seek it. Now the family's been waiting in the wings, 31, and his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and they called to him. Now it was so crowded that apparently they couldn't get in, but they had come, remember? This is where the context would point to. It is his own inner family that is concerned about his mental state. And the multitude was sitting around him on the inside, and they said to him, behold, <laughs> have you ever said this to one of your friends you're, you, when you were growing up? Hey, your mama, your mama's calling you. I don't know how they said it, you know. <laughs> hey, Jesus. Your, your mom is outside <laughs> calling for you. Your brothers are out there too. They, they want you to come with them. Your brothers are outside there looking for you. And answering them, Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? What? His mother, his, his dear mother, and his bros that he grew up with, what what does he say now? Does he say it in light of what they're thinking or what they've come to do? That they, they, they mean well, right? If they've come to maybe try to rescue him from danger, they mean well. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm about kingdom business right now. Remember when he was 12 and the family realized he was missing and they went back and they found him in the temple and They said, what have you done? And he said, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's business? Or didn't you know I was going to be in my father's house? He was distancing himself from his human family because his origins are from heaven. This is his priority. And so he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? And looking about, and he's probably sitting with the 12 newly assigned apostles, this is an idea of a searching look, like he paused and looked them in the eyes. He looked about on those who were sitting around him, and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. you imagine being an apostle sitting there? Wow, I'm your family, Lord? Yeah, and he clarifies. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. And mother, In a Jewish setting where family was such a high priority, this had to be shocking. I don't think that he is dishonoring his family because Jesus would never do that, but I think he is saying there's a new family. This is why I came. I came to assemble a family in the kingdom of God. I came to assemble a body of Christ. And the ones that are a part of that body are the ones who do the will of God. Jesus says, John 14 If you love me, then keep my commandments. And right now, his family doesn't believe in him. His brothers certainly don't believe in him, John 7, 4. But his apostles are being shaped. They're going to be, if you will, that new family. Family is very important. And it is essential to life. And in Hebrew culture, obviously, it's very important. But Jesus is saying, look, there's something new going on here. And my family is going to have to believe it as well. And his brothers did. James calls himself a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine saying that of your brother, I'm your bondservant? You know, most brothers won't even help each other with the laundry. (laughs) No, no, no. I did the dishes last night. And these brothers end up saying, I'm a bondservant. Whatever he says, That's what I'm going to do because he is something much bigger. Let me ask you, are you in his family? Is it your sole desire to do his will? You know, his will has become the delight of so many of you now. Amen. And, you know, we have some movements in our world today and I would say that there are nothing less than cultic that tell people to leave their families and uh, disassociate themselves from siblings and moms and dads. That's absolutely wrong. That is not what is going on here. Family is to be honored and treasured. But my first priority, and this may shock some of you, is not my family, it's God. In fact, I believe it's clear that when I love God, I will love my family better. I believe it's clear that when I have a relationship with Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, that's how I will then love my wife as Christ loved the church. Amen? This is not an either-or thing here. This is when you get heaven's priorities right and God is truly number one in your life. Everything else is... Is better. In fact, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that you are, and then love what? Your neighbor as yourself. The Bible's not saying do one at the exclusion of the other, but the Bible is saying that the one is the priority, and the other will follow. In Luke's account, final verses, it came about that while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you. This is Luke 11, 27, 28 and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Would you bow with me? Father, we want to be people who obey you. You are our creator. We have everything we have because of you. Life, new life in Christ, family, friends, church family, it's all because of you. C.S. Lewis talked about the fact that When I love God better, I will love my earthly dearest better. And Lord, thank you that this is really what you want to do in our lives. You want to make us a person that loves well. That's got to start with that vertical relationship. And Lord, forgive us for the many times when we've prioritized everything else above you. We've made other things our idols, sometimes with good intentions. We get really busy in this life and sometimes we just forget. Sometimes we brush aside spiritual priorities. Thank you that you're so patient with us. Thank you that you've changed our marriages and our families so much the better. Thank you for each soul that's here this morning. And In reading this account, this is in our face, Lord. We we realize this is not easy stuff. But this is what you said, and this is who you are. And this is the abuse that you took. And the only reason you came was to save us. The very people that were blaspheming you and saying all manner of evil against you, you had come to save. And from the cross, you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, we know you are patient. So thank you for your mercy, which is new right here this morning for e- anyone who would come to you. Help us to be people who realize we're adopted into your family, and live out those priorities. We praise you and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before we start the last song, C.S. Lewis, famous atheist who was influenced by Tolkien described his own conversion as he was kicked, dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Very logical mind, has written some wonderful things on apologetics, and he said he was basically dragged into the kingdom, but into the kingdom he went. And he made a famous statement. He said, look, I want to help you. I'm paraphrasing, avoid a mistake that people make. Some people will say that Jesus was just a good moral teacher and they'll hang their hat on that. They're not speaking evil against Jesus, but they don't believe he's truly God in the flesh and they think that they're okay there. But Lewis said, Jesus never gave you that room. He's either a lunatic, and that's what some people said about him. They said he was insane. He's either a liar. These are three L's. He's either a liar, uh, which some people did say, That of him as well, or at least implied it, or he is the Lord. Three L's, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. But he said, but stop with this patronizing nonsense that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He said, he never gave you that space. That's just an imaginative thing to hang your hat on. That's not what he said. He claimed to be the Lord. You can't have someone claiming to be the only way to heaven and claim they're a good moral teacher. Doesn't work. He either is who he said he is or he's not. And Lewis said, look, this is is the idea. He said, you can curse him as a demon, you can blaspheme his name, or you can fall at at his feet and call him Lord. I ask you, which have you done? What is true of you? If you want to know him as your Lord and Savior, then today's the day. Now is the acceptable time. He came for you. He came because God so loved the world. But this is what he dealt with pretty much on a daily basis to come and rescue us. God is good. Amen? So if you want to know him, just say something like this. Jesus saved me. I believe what the Bible says about you is true. You could say it right now. You could say it in your heart. I want to turn from my sin my misconceptions, my doubts, my fears, my lack of faith, and I'm going to turn to you. Save me. And if you'll cry out to him, the Bible says you will be saved, but you must have a moment when you do it for yourself.